traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And this week sees me released from studio captivity to London's grand old Palladium Theatre. Behind me, actors, musicians and technicians are busy putting the finishing touches to Rogers and Hammerstein's The King and I. Thank you, thank you, Diane. It's the story of forbidden love and prejudice at the royal court of Siam, now Thailand, in the 1860s. At its Broadway premiere in 1951, a golden age for musicals, the show was a huge hit. But in recent years, even devoted fans have balked at its reliance on stereotypes and the casting of white actors in the role of the king. Your Majesty wishes me to leave. I will tell you when I wish you to leave. Your Majesty, this is schoolteacher, Madame Lil Nuance. Who are schoolteacher? Yes, Your Majesty. I am school teacher. So, in the spirit of our Open Future season, exploring freedom of expression and diverse open societies, we're asking how do you revive a timeless classic musical as a tale for today? With me to answer that question is the director of The King and I, Bartlett Share. Bartlett is a veteran of Broadway and the London West End, whose repertoire spans opera, Shakespeare and contemporary theatre. Last year, he won a Tony Award for Best Play with Oslo. But he's made a reputation for spectacular but serious revivals of musical classics, from South Pacific to My Fair Lady, that get straight to the heart of the stories and make them sing for thoroughly modern audiences. Welcome for presentment to school teacher. Your Majesty, we have not solved my problem. Silence! You will sit here to meet royal children. Very well, Your Majesty. Bartlett Chair, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, how are you? Very well, and very good to be with you at rehearsals. We've crept away backstage because yes, they're uh, yes, uh, they are definitely preparing actively for first night. Tell me what attracts you to these classical works. Are they a bit of a safe bet? It's a really interesting question because more recently than ever, I keep being asked, you know, why do you go back and do these old stories as if somehow there's something in the middle of them that's got some terrible corrupt past that we just won't, we don't want to face anymore or that we looked at a certain way and we're not proud of or we can't do that. And that, for me, that's just not really quite how theater works. Theater works purposely to go back and investigate your past, who you were, when you were, and make you go and watch it and sort of see how we've changed, see what questions we were asking then, see how they affect us now, and bring us to sort of new conclusions. And particularly in the case of Rodgers and Hammerstein, who, you know, grew out of the operetta tradition, they're amazingly experimental artists for their time, and they took some enormous risks, and they were really, really, truly 
exceptional at what they did. So tell me what the risks are with The King and I. I mean, what makes that relevant yeah. to audiences now? Yeah, the risks are, as we've now investigated how we represent other cultures, how we represent the past, uh, it gets accused of a kind of Orientalism, a kind of exotic look at Yeah, the that's East. the charge, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's the yep. charge. And I don't think that's an unfair charge because at the time it was trying to represent another culture which we were just learning about. However, the story is still the story, and it, was, it does tell us something about where we are now. I think it's worth stripping, making simpler. It has a lot of new and extraordinary things to tell us now. And how do you strip back that exoticism or that charge of Orientalism without losing the charm? Yeah. And well, the fact is you do want something that takes you back to a disappeared world. Yeah, I think if anybody knows the 1950s movie, you see in the 1950s movie these kind of weird plaids and this kind of crazy approximation of the palace and the huge dresses. And it looks like 1950s version of 1862. It doesn't look like a real version. And we understand a lot more about period and things like that. What I did in the case of this show is I sort of stripped it of all that exotic external things and built it in a very spare and pure way so that the story wasn't encased in some sort of jewelry, but encased more for what it is and what it could represent of Siam at the time. And how did you approach the role of the king? Because that's basically where all these questions kind of land. The king and his family, King Mongut, he was actually a learned man. He was 27 years as a monk, a reformer of the, the monarchy. Yeah. Uh, and yet there is a sense that, that the work treats him a little bit as a caricature. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the things that are helpful to know about the period that he worked, he lived in in 1862, which I do find similar now, is he was struggling between a traditional culture and modernizing his culture. So you see that in all kinds of developing countries around the world, and particularly in Islam, the struggle between tradition and modernity. And that's one he's facing. So he is a king in 1862 who's surrounded by colonizers, the French, the British, and others. Um, he's facing all kinds of dissent within his own community, and he's operating in a context of what they call patrilineal rule, meaning he ruled through marriage and through family. So Siam would be a collection of families, which explains why he has 80 wives. They're all from different parts of the country, and you it's not really just that he's got this giant harem. It was actually how they maintained power. And that system itself is breaking down and starting to undergo a lot of change. And so you see him in the middle of enormous industrialization and change and colonization trying to protect his culture. And at the same time, he's interested in education and how to elevate his people. I see. Uh, Your Majesty, ah, about our Captain, you already speak well the English. She arrived today. She's present to me from King Obama. She is a present? Madam, you have English books. And the casting, Ken Watanabe is, is the king here. How carefully did you think about that? Because that's one of the areas of greater sensitivity has been the move away from casting white actors. Yes, I mean, in, in, the, original production, in the original production in 1951, there were almost 70 actors in it, and two of them were Asian. Okay, there's no way on earth we would do that now. And uh, we obviously know that's not appropriate and doesn't make any sense. In casting Ken, I was really looking for somebody who could do that sense of um, power and royalty and kingship in the way that he could capture it. And he's an extremely well-known Japanese movie star. And as a result, he brings to it an enormous authority, intelligence. And I think he's elevated the role of the king. It's, a, in a ways, a tragic role. You know, he doesn't quite survive 
the changes that are besieging his country, and he pushes it ahead a bit. But he struggles all the way through, and, and we're trying to pull out how he struggles. What about the, the role of Anna? I mean, some critics are saying, well, her diaries claim more credit than she was due for political and social reform, and it wouldn't be the, the first time that a diarist had overegged the pudding on that one. But that then becomes a bit sensitive in this view of the kind of white saviour. Yeah, the white saviour myth is always tricky. Um, I think the very basics of the story are the same. He brought in a school teacher to help educate his people to modernize his country, and particularly his family, which is quite extensive. And um, she acts as this connection between the two cultures and helps him to understand how he can evolve and push his kingdom forward. I think it's charming. I think it's interesting that it's not a romance. In fact, you know, which is where the musical would always go. They kind of flirt with the idea that somehow there's a connection between them. But the film then, certainly does. Yeah, they, they flirt with it, but they can't actually go there because he, uh, the king himself tried to have some wives from Western Europe and didn't work out in the original King Mongood. But I think that Anna's role is one of our interest in otherness and their interest in us and where those, those come together. And I think that it's fascinating that Hammerstein was attracted to these complex subjects, that he could see the connection between it. And he could see that it would provide a place for the music to go. It would provide a place for him to use a different kind of expression. And it would provide a place for what he found most important in theater, which was learning. And when you watch how everyone within this particular piece has to learn and change, that's when it becomes an interesting piece. Getting to know you, getting to know all about you, getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. And of course you don't want to overload it with political significance, but the the plays that you do in a lot of the works, whether musical or not, are to do with social and political messages. And this is really kind of internationalism versus protective nationalism. Correct. Right on the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. So when when we first started doing this three years ago, it was the piece it was. We restored a line from the original text in which uh, the king says, sometimes I want to build a fence around Siam. Sometimes I want to let everyone in. And our audiences, post the man who is currently our president, uh, really exploded at that line because they could see this sense. You see that here in England with Brexit, this sense of do you close your borders or remain open to others? And this is a king in 1862 going through exactly the same problem. And where do you think we are now in musical theatre generally? I mean, you've been doing this for a few years. You have My Fair Lady, I think, running at the moment in the States. Hamilton has come like a sort of bombshell into musical theatre. Has it changed things for people like you? Well, I think Hamilton's an astonishing, great, exceptional piece of work. I mean, I think it's changed everything. But I do think these things come along at different points. I think if you saw Oklahoma in 1949, you'd think it was its version of Hamilton at the time. It was a huge transformation. And then if you went and saw Sweeney Todd, you know, in the late 70s, you'd go, well, that's another one that sort of blew everything apart. There comes these sort of regenerations of this form in which it keeps pushing itself ahead. The musical theater currently is very healthy. You have Pasek and Paul's uh, Dear Evan Hansen. You have a lot of writers working very hard to make new pieces. We just had the band's visit, which is a beautiful new piece, win all the Tonys this year. People are pushing. They're trying to get into new territory. But at the same time, one does not cancel out the other. 
you just sort of build a historical corridor through which you analyze and look at your work and see where you're moving ahead, see where you came from, and you kind of do both things at the same time. And how do you handle the diversity question, both when you're casting or thinking about the concept of this show? Because I imagine it can become a challenge, but also a bit of a burden if every decision that you make has to sort of run through a set menu of questions. What's the right balance for creatives there? Very complicated question. (laughs) Um, If you take something like King and I, it doesn't make sense to cast it with an eye to diversity because you have a very particular culture that needs to be represented. I've done uh, August Wilson plays, and that doesn't make sense to have diverse casting. But a piece like My Fair Lady, which I just did on Broadway, has a completely multi-ethnic cast. And uh, it seems fine. It seems completely appropriate and quite makes sense. So I suppose... There isn't a set rule of exactly how to do this, but you do everything you can to make sure every opportunity is available to everybody. That's kind of how we go about it working on these shows. But what does colorblind casting really mean? Because you have to take a good look at the person. It's not like doing something for an office job or something you can do without knowing ethnicity. I, I wouldn't say that colorblind casting is entirely appropriate for every single show. It wouldn't make sense in every single context. Every kind of thing has to be evaluated differently from one to the next. But casting has to always take into consideration every possible opportunity for every possible person. So you do that no matter what. Um, And that shifts from piece to piece. You don't know what audiences here in London are going to make of The King and I yet, of course, but you have brought shows here and you had uh, Oslo done over here at the National Theatre. Do you notice a difference in the way that audiences respond? And can you predict it? Ah. It's your chance to widen the transatlantic divide. No, I know. The transatlantic divide is uh, more profound than we maybe know. Uh, audiences here are extremely good listeners. They have a, usually are experienced theater goers. So it's been a part of their growing up since they went to their first panto. And they don't necessarily come in expecting to get charged up by the piece or like have their mind blown every single time, <laughs> as it were. Whereas in New York, especially in New York, often people go to handicap shows. They go to see one versus another, you know, especially if you're in Tony season, to compare their favorites. It's a bit of a sports kind of uh, experience. And people are looking for new things. They're looking for new ways of experiencing the theater. I suppose King and I is a very epic, broad story told in a very sweeping way, and it's from our past. So audiences who come and know it will have a history with a piece, and they'll experience it from the point of view of that history as opposed to a brand-new piece where they have no idea what's going on. Or like Hamilton, which they've heard so much about but they haven't experienced yet. I mean, Hamilton is this amazing mixture of American history and hip-hop and the sort of brilliant mind of Lin-Manuel, and it is very fresh expression of our own past, King and I, I think, would have been similar at the time. You know, they were doing a take on the past, and they were using music to express that. Its energy is very different. But it's an epic, profound story that I think audiences can get swept up in and find quite moving. And in December, you're going to be directing To Kill a Mockingbird. That's a new adaptation by Aaron Sorkin, uh, known, of course, from The West Wing. The production's already settled a lawsuit filed by Harper Lee's estate, uh, alleging the adaptation straight too far from the original. Is there a case to answer there, and, and what should we expect? I mean, an adaptation's an adaptation. I think works of art are living things. 
they've worked out all the issues between the estates, and we have what I think is a really excellent play that I think is very, very faithful to Harper Lee's original story. But it, no matter what happens, it's on stage, and it being on stage means that it's not going to be like the film, it's not going to be like reading a book, and we're going to have to make some choices. And so we've navigated all that. I think, again, it's a very powerful American story, which has a lot to tell us, in which the people in it behave in a way which we would not behave now. There's horrible racism in it. There's incredible language that we would not speak now. And you really learn about the world of the 1930s in Alabama. And you see where we've come from. And I think it will have a big impact on audiences, particularly in America now, and on the kind of people we have become and can become. I get the feeling that you look around a lot and decide what you want to do and have a good think about it. So what's the work that you're absolutely dying to do, which might turn out to be the most difficult? There are reasons why it's not done very much or is just your desert island favourite? I mean, I'm lucky in the sense that I've gotten to do all kinds of things, whether it was Chekhov, Shakespeare, Moliere, operas, Verdi, Rossini. I've been extremely lucky uh, in my work in Brothers Amazon, my work in classical theater. I've done a lot of new plays. I've done new musicals. I think the really hardest thing of all of those, the most challenging, is the new work. To do something like Oslo, the pushing into the new territory where you're, you're asking questions again. I'm doing a, a musical with Adam Gettle called Millions, which is very, very beautiful and extremely unique. That's where the big challenges are because audiences, it's one thing to do this. I still haven't got the one you dream about doing, though. <laughs> the thumbscrews are out now, Bart. I know, the one I dream about doing. I'm so tired from the ones I am doing. Uh, to be perfectly honest, the reason it's hard to answer is the world of classical musicals is a very intense one. So whenever you take on some of these great classics, you find yourself a little worn out because you're in a constant battle between the past and the present. And that's been quite a wearing battle. You, f- you feel the, the stress of that. So I don't know that I would go back and say Sound of Music or Oliver or ones that I actually really love as much as I would say taking on challenges like To Kill a Mockingbird has always been high on my list because it's one that I very seriously have been trying to do for years and years and years. And I think the perilous political situation in America has made me want to go more and more into political stories about our past, rather than trying to challenge people about their sense of who we exactly are now, which is, frankly, quite disturbing and quite alarming. We shouldn't forget the music, because that's what is going to drive a lot of the audiences in, um, on the strict understanding that this kind of thing can happen, as one of the, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the, the lyrics goes. I mean, well, you're going to pick one of your darlings, which is the song that just always lifts your heart. Oscar Hammerstein's favourite song was Hello, Young Lovers, probably that he ever wrote in his whole career. I think musically for me, the the highlight of the piece is the ballet. It's not a sung, but it's such an extraordinary thing to take uh, Harry Peter Stowe's novel and translate it into a ballet as a story of oppression to show to a king who enslaves his own people. It's a very radical and profound moment that I don't think anybody even writing musicals now would have the nerve or the courage or the intuition to pull off in the same way. And when you come and see this brilliant connection of this American story this king who's trying to endure change and this 
basically oppression narrative being presented in front of him, it's pretty, it's pretty brilliant. But let's share, we must let you get back to your tech rehearsal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. Booking and I is at the London Palladium Theatre until September. But what do you think? Should directors try to modernise classic works for new sensitivities? Or should audiences be allowed to draw their own conclusions? And how can the great stages of Broadway and the West End represent increasingly diverse audiences? Write to us at radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio using the hashtag OpenFuture. I'm Anne McElvoy, taking my curtain call here at the London Palladium. This is The Economist. 